Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? What's offered to one is offered to the other. Amber whiskey in a glass. A horn of mead. A Snickers bar. What's offered to one is offered to the other. Bonded in blood. Shared in good faith. What's offered to one is offered to the other. The gift of tongue and lip of quivering chords, of speech and song, of foot and dance, of upraised voices and bloody spears, of hopes and dreams, sacrosanct in their keeping, holy in their hearing, they hear they see, they take it in. Hail to you, Odin, Ok Loki. Welcome everybody to another edition of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number six, and I am James Stovall, and you just heard the opening prayer by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How's it going tonight, Sarenth? I'm exhausted, but I'm feeling really good. <laughs> Yay! We're exhausted and punchy. Yay! Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, everybody, we uh, wanted to bring you a little bit of a catch-up episode tonight. Sarah and I had, we just wanted to get caught up with what's going on with us. We know it's been a little bit since we put out an episode, and we're getting some really good feedback and some good questions in the mailbag, which we may or may not address tonight. I don't know. We'll kind of see how it goes. Mm-hmm. But we've been recording some really good interviews, too. We've got... Uh, Uh, Next week, next Tuesday, everything going well, you'll be dropping into your podcast feed a nice long uh, two-hour one as we interview Sanyan, and we're talking about Dionysus and and tribalism and all kinds of other things. And then down the road, we recorded a great one with Nicholas Haney, another nice long one talking about futurism and animism and all kinds of fun stuff. So those will be dropping pretty soon, but we don't want to do too many interview episodes right in a row so we thought maybe a little bit of time to to chat with jim and sarah might be fun so and just to be you know perfectly honest with y'all we wanted to have a couple in the bag because we got some things coming up uh, especially with the holidays (laughs) barreling down at us right right exactly exactly i don't know anybody that's in the in the mid-michigan area i've been exhausting myself because uh i'm trying to coordinate this as a director and a producer the rocky horror picture show uh, Shadowcast here in the Jackson area for November 1st, so that's that's been occupying a lot of my time and on top of that I just got back from a teaching weekend and I've been doing fires, ceremonial fires for people and it's been a pretty full schedule. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, and Sarenth, you've been working tons of overtime again, so... Mm-hmm. Whether I want to or not. Yeah, exactly. It's just that way at work right now. Exactly. 
Yeah, 12 hours is kind of my baseline, and, and anything else on top of that is gravy, so who knows? Mm. Any given day, what the heck we can get done, right? Pretty much, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 been slow going as far as brain to speech patterns today, but uh, once the, the vacation, which ironically starts the first, um, gets underway... Once I get back the OT, I'm going to be cutting down as much as I humanly can because this this is this is a bit much. Right, exactly. You'll burn yourself out real quick. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a good topic question. If if we want to take five minutes and talk about that a little bit, what sure? What do you do spiritually uh, different on your path that you would like when when time is tight and you're working a lot of hours? How do you adjust your path and your working and and, and spiritual demands? I mean, I'm I'm very lucky in, in if I'm ex, I'm too exhausted to just say do offerings. Um, my wife and our son will do them as many as they can, uh, and then I I get to the ones that they can't touch mm-hmm. uh, when I when I can. Um, I I was sick during my vacation at the start of the month, and. So during that whole time, they were doing most of the offerings because I was I was dropped. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, a lot of my path when I'm exhausted getting toward burnout is a whole lot of sleeping and making prayers and offerings and such when and where I can. Um, so I'll do things like, you know, the usual water offerings, offerings occasionally of whiskey or food or what have you. Um, but the, the, the regimen has to stay as, as close to the same as possible because it gives me a center to my life. So, uh, with as much chaos as there is swirling around, I try to keep, um, at minimum the, the night prayers. Uh, I, every time I go to eat, I pray, uh, before I go to work, I do cleansing, grounding, centering, shielding work I double check my shields pretty constantly and I also take greater care uh, to to strip off clothes from work as soon as I get in the door bam Mm -hmm. they're they're off and I'm getting something comfy on because there's a clear there needs to be clear transitions between work and home exactly exactly it's like taking off your your work ritual garb in a way Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I, I really started getting into this when I was a funeral assistant, and it made a marked difference between how I lived my life at that point. So I've always kept that up ever since then. Um, you know, uh, before I touch anybody, I, I, at very least, when I, as soon as I walk in the door, as soon as I, I stop the car in the driveway, I'll cleanse and then I'll walk in and give the kids some hugs, kisses, and give the wife some hugs and kisses, and then I'll be able to drop off shortly afterwards once I've gone upstairs and, and changed into pajamas or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, like, everything is oriented around the hearth cultus that I do because it's it's the one steady state in what otherwise would be absolute madness. Right, <laughs> so, right. Um, so keeping up the daily rituals is an absolute must for me to have some kind, semblance of sanity in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny, though. You, I, I chuckle a little bit because 
when you lay it out long term like that, like when you make a complete bullet point list of the things that you do, it's like, I do this and I do that. And to someone else, uh, it might sound like a huge list, but uh, you have to understand that sometimes those things don't take necessarily a lot of time, but mm -hmm. it's just a matter of putting the intent into doing them. Yeah, when I tell people, you know, spend five to 15 minutes in prayer, they'll look at me like I'm, I'm out of my mind, especially if they're new to, to paganism or polytheism. But when you get right down to it, you know, if you if you map out exactly how much time I'm really praying, you know, it's so I've actually watched the clock because um, the difference between my, my family's uh, my, my parents' Catholic prayers and our prayers is a difference of eh, roughly 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like the, the wonderful thing about our, our prayers and the, the meal times is you can almost set your watch by how long it will take us. Right, so right. we're there, you know, between the uh, two family parts, we're praying for about a minute and 30. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So when you say so 15 it, minutes not... of prayer, it's not like it's a continuous 15 minutes every single day. That's broken up with meal prayers and little prayer here and an offering there, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I, I frequently will incorporate prayer with my, my cleansing and shielding and all that. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. It, it's a cumulative effect. It's right. it's a qualitative thing. It's not necessarily, I have spent so much time praying. It's the consistency, because mm -hmm. what, what are relationships built on? It's not necessarily, you know, oh, I, I spend two hours a day talking with my, my best friend. I, I don't have any friends that I consistently every day talk with for two hours. Right, yeah. <laughs> We'd get sick of you. No, <laughs> that's not untrue. I'm sure we would run out of things to talk about at some point. I mean, devolves you know, we... into a staring contest. <laughs> I mean, we have other things to do. You, you know, know, it's funny. I when I say I say that jokingly, but I the the thing that instantly pops into my head uh, is actually something that my kids had always commented on as well. It was the relationship that my uh, my grandparents had. And I always remember like coming over here to the house where they were living here and grandma would be reading her mystery novels and grandpa would be reading probably a Western and he'd be kicked back in the chair. Maybe, maybe he was out on the porch smoking a pipe or whittling on something or, you know, something in the, in the wood shop. But a lot of times it was a matter of they were reading books in the same room and then she made dinner. So that means he hung out in the kitchen and then when mealtime was over uh, he would do the dishes so she would hang out in there and that to them was spending time together so some of it wasn't even like directly interacting with each other it's just spending you know time in the same space doing things you enjoy and I think probably a lot of that extends into our, our, our spiritual practices to a degree like I, I know I don't always necessarily stop and pray but when I'm doing things, even really mundane tasks, if I'm climbing up a ladder at work, I might stop and think to myself, would Jaguar enjoy this? Would, you know what I mean? Like, oh, here I am mm -hmm. peering off of this balcony up at work that I don't normally go up to, to to retrieve a box. Well, let's just take a second and really look out across this, this, you know, retail death. <laughs> but let's do it. Let's do it as Condor would do it. Let's enjoy this really high perspective sort of thing. I don't know. I kind of think those moments count for a lot. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, for me, one of the most striking things about starting up work with Dionysus a couple of years back was how much I felt him present in my current employment. Mm. And I, I feel aspects of Odin and Loki here, too. 
and you know it's not even really a, a conscious thing most of the time it's just sitting back and recognizing oh that's their presence that's their influence right and appreciating that um one of the things i do at work is if i'm feeling really called to do some kind of like elaborate prayer i i carry prayer cards with me in my backpack everywhere i go i have uh you know those those uh, clear shampoo bottles oh yeah that, that you have for airport security or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i've got like four of those in a carry-on plastic see-through bag blue tinted and i have my prayer cards in there and so i take uh I have to make it up again, but I had a mugwort tincture in there at some point. A mugwort tea, more or less, uh, and a uh, couple of vials of different forms of salt. I think one was pink Himalayan, and another one was, uh, I think it might have just been straight up uh, kosher salt. And so I'll take those with me, and if I feel like I really need to ground out and my usual protocol isn't working, I'll just throw some uh, some salt on my tongue, and that'll that'll fix me real quick you know so even even in those little moments like if I'm if I'm sit, sitting down to eat at work and I have five seconds to, to rub my brain cells together and start a fire right <laughs> there's always time to connect even if it's not formalized prayer yeah exactly I find that a lot of times the uh, when we get so busy the most I can usually do is just make sure I'm gonna take five or ten minutes and and just really kind of be quiet and settle into my skin and then uh, mm-hmm. do a, a, a prayer offering, a, a thanks offering. Because like what I do following uh, spirits of several different traditions here and there, both uh, traditions that were taught and, and genetic lineages, I kind of mix things up a little bit. So I'll, I'll start out with Fala, thank you, to, to Veles and some of the Slavic gods, Vestu, hail to the Germanic gods, uh, and those would you know those cover a lot of my genetic heritage, and then I go over and uh, Chimigwich to a lot of the local spirits, Anye to all the Peruvian spirits, and so I just I have this whole laundry list, and then one of the things I really love about the Peruvian traditions, you know, every prayer of things like that, I, I just name as much as I possibly can and give thanks to it. But always in the Peruvian stuff, the last prayer is to anything I've forgotten, or you know, to any, and I I love that beautiful simplicity of it because sometimes, especially when you're tired, you're working a lot of overtime, your brain just freezes, and and so I love including that kind of thing in there as well. Heck yeah, and <laughs> you know, so I'll frequently I'll, I'll pour out offerings to Odin, and I won't I'll I'll not consciously think about it, but later at some point I'll recognize, you know what, I didn't say, and also to Loki. You know, it's a little bit of a faux pas, it's a bit disrespectful, because I'm supposed to be offering to both of them, they're blood brothers. Mm-hmm. And so I'll take that time aside to apologize to Loki and and make sure that he knows that offering is, you know, the offerings I make to Odin are also to him. And yeah, so that makes total sense to me. What really I, I think is really interesting is is how you keep stuff together, but you also keep it kind of separate in its own. You know, you're not saying Vestu Heil to you know the Apu. You know? Right, right. Well, it's important to me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm by no means a linguist. Anybody that's listened to these shows long enough knows I, I slaughter English on a regular basis. But uh, 
I think it's important, at least for some things like like calling and things and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, to to try my best to do it in in the older languages. And not only is a sign of respect, but it helps me get out of the day to day headspace. Yeah, I I I've been working on getting in more old Norse where I can for right. that reason. Yeah, because there's something powerful about being able to sit down and say even a simple phrase in the old tongue. Right, right. I mean, and I, I realize all the spirits everywhere, just like all my listeners are probably going, holy crap, is this guy's accent Midwestern. Sorry, that's just <laughs> the way it goes. I'm doing my best here. But, you know, I do think it's important to approach things as much as you possibly can with uh, with that sort of honorific that, that uh, derives from the original source as much as you can. Absolutely. And and giving everything you know, that you work with, worship, what have you, its own place, I mean, is really important. Mm-hmm. But I like the caveat you put at the end of the prayers to all I, f- I may have forgotten. I think I might start incorporating that because... Oh, I'm telling you. Wow. Well, I, how many times has it happened to you where you're, you know, you're... You get done, you think you're done, break time's almost over, your drive's almost done because, let's face it, drive time... If you can, if you can do drive time, it, it sometimes allows your brain to wander. As long as you're not wandering so much that you don't pay attention to what you're doing drive-wise. But <laughs> you know, for me, driving a lot of times clears a lot out because I'm I'm forced to rely on certain muscle skills. I'm forced to pay a certain level of attention to the road, and so that eliminates sometimes a lot of the the monkey brain chatter, which then also makes it a good time to just mouth prayers and that sort of thing. And I can't tell you how many times I've I've gotten someplace and you get out of the car and you're halfway in and you're like, oh, man, I should have said a prayer too. And, you know, I, I, that way at least it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of covered in a way. And I don't mean it with any sort of disrespect, but, you know, my, my little meat brain can only handle remembering so many things. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there. so we've started incorporating Mimir into our prayers and we have a very... <laughs> We have very rote night prayers. We have very right. rote meal prayers. And so we're still stumbling over including him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so sometimes he gets into the proper place because we have different sections of our night prayer are dedicated to certain sections of different pantheons of gods. So the beginning of our night prayer is all about the Norse gods, and then it transitions mm-hmm. into the Celtic and then the Greek and Roman. Well, <laughs> when you put a new name in there, Right. It's it's uh, especially when you're talking about rote prayers. You know where a neat place to incorporate a, a prayer to Mimir would be? Hmm. Before you even get into bed and start the other prayers. Like if your kids are like mine or even like I am a lot of times, you take a glass of water to bed, make the prayer over the glass of water as you're drawing it. It's coming up out of the well symbolically and then mm. then you do that before you even head in the bedroom with the rest of the prayers. I like that. I like that. That's Ooh, I like that. Yeah, Ooh, brainstorming. <laughs> so yeah, well, no, I just I, I happen to think of it because uh, uh, there's a, a good friend uh, on Facebook, Jonathan, who I've had the honor of sitting with a few times at a couple different powwows, and he talked about the importance of the very first thing that he does in the morning, whether he remembers to to verbally say a prayer or not, is to just remember how sacred water is you know water is life 
and and so the first thing he puts in his body is a glass of water before anything else and and so just the act of drawing that water and putting it in his body is the sacred thing to him like that even if he remembers or not verbal prayers and so i was just thinking to myself that, that flipping that in reverse as uh, as being a prayer right before you even get to the bed with the rest of the prayers might be a, a nifty place to include it that's a really good idea that's a really good idea because um especially since he's the 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 patron god of Mimir's brother kindred, I mean, it's upon us, so... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Alright then. Alright, so... <laughs> and this, folks, is exactly what happens around the sacred fires when Zareth and I sit around. <laughs> this is exactly yeah. the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah, I can't tell you how many practices I've developed just from sitting around and chit-chatting with different spiritual folk around the fire. Mm-hmm. And I bring that home and go, wow, that made a lot of sense. Yeah, and now I wonder, so how can I incorporate you... this or that? Or I come to a mm. new understanding of something, and that's exactly how it rolls. But... Yeah, because, I mean, the, the first thing when we do our, our hearth rituals, um, after we cleanse the space with with rekar, smoke, and uh, fire, is we pour out offerings. So that makes total sense. Mm hmm hmm. Hmm. How about that? All right, then. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a question for you, too, as long as we're, I don't know, I'm just kind of rambling around in my head of things that I know that we wanted to get caught up on. Did we talk about uh, our experiences at Ann Arbor Pagan Pride yet? How did, I don't know if we broadcast that at all, did we? No, we have not. All right, because I, I know you, you, were, you brought up the kindred, and I know you guys had a uh, had the, the main ritual at Ann Arbor Pagan Pride, and so... I wanted to ask you how that went. So, main ritual went very well. I'm very proud of my kindred mates. Uh, Matt and Caitlin did excellent jobs, and I couldn't be happier. We um, did what's called house bloat, which is the autumn sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, and and some folks have this this understanding that bloat must mean blood sacrifice. And you know, I I had that view once upon a time but it's kind of been modified since because yeah bloat has the implication of blood sacrifice but it's not right. always mm -hmm. so um you know uh so so the autumn sacrifice being what it is is our second harvest festival so for us it was the bringing into the, the first fruits of really the fall mm -hmm. and asking the gods to bless them so we had locally uh, produced foods that we made offerings of had organic bread that we brought in and we also because uh, our, our sacred meads are often made in conjunction with events like our holidays we actually brew, started the brew for a sacred mead nice which went really well, although definitely we'll have less water next time because that was a bit much. We ended up having to uh, entertain the bees quite a bit, but we ended up having to pour out some water and, and finagle with the, the measurements. So, <laughs> Right. I usually am more careful with when I do measurements, but this was like, wow, this was a lot more intuitive than I usually do brewing. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
Uh, but it started. It's it's bubbling away in uh, Matt and Caitlin's home, and I'm very excited to see how this turns out. Yeah, I was kind of it was intriguing to me because being in a, if I understand correctly, from, uh, you uh, did the start of a brew because this was a public ceremony in a public mm-hmm. space and and people of various age groups. So it was one of those situations where you couldn't consume alcohol but nothing says the ritual can't be about starting the mead and doing all the blessings for everything that goes into that which i thought was kind of fascinating i don't think you're going to find that in a lot of other places a lot of Mm. public rituals well no i mean uh wcc basically has a a blanket no alcohol policy so well it's not technically alcohol yet (laughs) (laughs) right exactly i mean it really isn't it's at this point you know until it ferments it's water honey and yeast Mm -hmm. um but it was a really powerful thing to bring the elements together. And as we're putting these together, uh, as, especially as Matt and Caitlin are putting these together, I was telling the, the story of Mead itself and relating to the audience what the point of brewing at this time would be. You know, Because you figure it takes three months to the first rack, mm-hmm. which is where you transfer the meat out of one carboy into another to get the particulates to, you know, because at that point your particulates should be separating. Your dead yeast is on the bottom. And the, so from, from the start of the process to the end can be six weeks. If you want to bottle age it for the rest of the shelf life or whatever, however long it is until you drink it. Right. Right. So you can have a young, young, young mead in uh, as little as six weeks. Um, now, that said, if you really want it to age like a good wine, you'll probably take a half a year to a year. But for us, the, the, the importance of, of talking with the audience about the process of making mead and the sacrifices involved with it and everything else was uh, we recognized, you know, Cavesier, Oath, and and Gunlaw's contributions. We recognized that you know we don't get anything without sacrifice. Like mm-hmm. almost all of our myths have that element to it. And so it was the the real bringing home of this is what brewing means. You know, it's it's not just oh we're making stuff to get you know shit faced on. This is a very sacred process and a old one. Yeah, and not only a sacred process, but when you look at uh, historically how stuff like that was used, because the the alcohol was uh, a safer beverage to consume a lot of times than the actual water was, that adds mm-hmm. extra importance to it. Yeah, it's only been relatively recently that drinking uh, ages limits have been raised. If you if you look over the the over history, it's only relatively recently that water's been safe enough. Mm-hmm. To do that, so I mean that <laughs> that should say everything right there. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, like you said, water is life. Well, yeah, water is life when it's not you know full of contaminants and trying to kill you. So you know, <laughs> mead, ale, beers, you know, not just fun to drink, but also one of the the safest ways to make water. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds me of, of Mimir's well because the uh, contents of the well are remarked upon as as either water or mead depending on how you read it. 
Oh, really? And so Odin taking a drink out of Mimir's well, and the, the well constantly being a refilling thing. You know, yeah, there's definitely, it's a well, it's water, but there's also this kind of side implication of there being either Mimir's got his own store of mead, or some kind of beverage he makes from from the well itself, or by the process of being in his well and being gifted out, there's some kind of transference of mead. There's, there's, it depends on how you read it, and I'm not saying it's like in the Lord, this is mead. It, it's not, <laughs> right? But um, I've seen. And I wish my my brain could grind the gears hard enough to remember which translation I was reading. There was this implication like he was drinking ale mm-hmm. or drinking mead when Mimir handed him a drink in an offering for his eye. Because hmm. it was uh, like he was passing a horn over after he plucked out his eye and said, here you go. Yeah. But uh, that's, I mean, there's there's different ways to interpret the myths, even if it does not say something very blatant. And I love that about all of our, our stories, that there's so many different angles to look at them. So when somebody says, well, I got this out of the myth, is that right? Well, what's right? Like, <laughs> when you're talking about interpreting a story, are you getting out of it what you should be? Like, you know, if you ask, you know, well, does this mean, you know, does this particular myth mean that Odin is, is the cuddliest teddy bear? No. <laughs> no, probably not. But that doesn't mean that he's without care. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, so so the the house bloat for for uh, Pagan Pride Day was really nice. Um, what I think marks a lot of our rituals is very different from a lot of say Wiccan ritual. Is we don't use altered states of consciousness. We intentionally don't. Um, a lot of of Wiccan ritual will incorporate some aspect, whether it's raising the cone of power, or it's uh, say drawing down will have some aspect at least for one or two of the participants if not the whole group mm-hmm. you know, the spiral dance being a, a classic example of pagan ritual where ecstatic states are encouraged uh, we, we don't really have that with a lot of our, our, our hearth cultists which is essentially what a house to bloat is it's, it was us kind of extending our hearth to the larger community and going this is what we do <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's the whole the whole point of holding a pagan Pride Day ritual is mm-hmm. is not to be like, okay, let's get everybody really you know juiced up. It's it's to express our different traditions, and if, if getting juiced up, it's just part of how your tradition does things. That's one thing, but it's it's really not how we do things in our kindred. Um, so it was actually very laid back, but also very formal. Uh, there was times for people to be able to come up and make offerings, uh, to do prayers, that kind of thing. We left the altar up through the end of the day, and then uh, once everything was settled down and quiet, then we broke down. But it's that holding of space, really, that's so important to our rituals to me. Mm-hmm. And that's true whether we're at Pagan Pride or, or uh, Pagan Fest, is to have that space for people to come and experience the gods. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, for us, accessibility to everybody is a must. So, you know, you know, 
can people who have mobility issues get to this ritual site? No? Cool, we're moving the ritual site then. Mm -hmm. um, is there going to be a standing or a sitting component? Cool. You know, at one point I actually asked my son to run around and grab chairs for people that needed them and asked for other people who were coming up. Yeah, bring a chair if you need it. Because uh, we don't really have a standing requirement. You know, um, so I, we do like to incorporate things like processionals where and when we can, but this wasn't the place for it. The house bloat is actually pretty intimate. It's kind of close to a Thanksgiving feast, really. And so that was kind of like, yeah, let's bring the community in. Everybody gets something to eat. Everybody gives some herb offerings, some offerings of food. And we go from there. Right. Yep. Makes sense to me. And we just recently, within the past couple of weeks, uh, took care of the offerings by a sacred fire. Oh, that's that was... nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always love the sacred fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Hearth Cultus is on my mind a lot right now. I'm in mm -hmm. the middle of, of uh, writing on uh, another addition to the On Ritual Praxis series I've been I've been writing for the last couple of months and it's all about hearth cultists, this latest one. So it's really, it's something that's baking in the back of my head a lot right now. Mm -hmm. And it was really important that we bring that element to, um, the pagan pride day. I think it's, it's not very often talked about because ADF for instance, has a core order of ritual for public rights. And so that is very much a, this is what we do in public. Well, we don't really have that separation. It's kind of like that, you know, we take our gods and our hearth kind of with us in the in the setting up of sacred space. Um, and there's really not a huge separation for us, at least right now, between what our private rituals and what our public rituals look like. You know, we might do some ecstatic work in the comfort of our own hearths, but really, when it comes right down to it. You know, the hearth is the heart of our religion. And that's that's proverbial as well as a literal hearth. For those who have literal hearts, you know, and I'll be honest, if we don't have one, I'm kind of jealous. Um, you know, for us, the hearth is the upstairs where we hold our altars to the gods, ancestors, and Vethia. Um, you know, uh, so much of our our lives have changed since the hearth was the literal center of the home. Right. That, yeah. you know, living, living rooms and kitchens kind of share double duty with, exactly. with those different aspects. Yeah, they sure do. When I'm, if I'm doing ritual work and, and it involves a hearth, you know, there's, you know, it was easy because we heated, uh, the house we lived in formerly, we heated with fire. And so that was a very easy distinction to make. But in the house that we're at now, um, the fireplace is long gone and, uh, so do we, you know, do you choose the kitchen or literally the basement where the furnace is? And I've made both those decisions depending on the nature of the ritual. So do you, so this is, this is an interesting dichotomy. So do you tend to worship like Catholic underworld deities in the basement? Or is there a separation there between different powers like that for you? You know, not so much, uh, not so much in the basement. But I, I will tell you that in my, in the space behind where I'm sitting right now, where I have most of my altars, the, the, Catholic type deities and, and spirits all have their altars on the floor, and, 
as opposed to, to other ones that have them on, on uh, a long bureau that I have or other ones that are raised above that on a shelf. So it's going to depend on it that way. Now that's not to say that there's not a few things in our house. So there's, there's a point in our house that's the highest point I could, I could safely reach where there is a very small uh, uh, representation of condor and down in the basement there is a representation of the serpent of Tunamaru who is uh, in the Peruvian traditions integral to the the fire ceremony itself and so there's a space for her in the basement so it does incorporate but not always you know it all kind of depends I, I, I mean I hate to say it maybe some of the underworld rituals would be better done in the basement but it's not always a conducive environment to doing some ceremonies especially like in spring, <laughs> in spring I pretty much have a river running through there. So, I mean, I've got a sump pump that runs almost constantly. There's a couple, I mean, this is an old farmhouse, 100 and, 100 and uh, almost 101 years old. And so there's a couple spots where the, the mortar and fieldstone are loose. And there, I mean, we literally have springs of water that come out in certain spots. So, you know, not everything can be done in the basement, especially depending on, on seasonal issues. So, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, especially when, when you think about different altars as being like hypostates of the cosmos, you know, up, down, left, and right are relative to what you're working with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, my goddess of death shares equal footing if you will as the other gods on the altar so i i don't do that distinction where a lot of others might but uh, the dead have their own altar mm-hmm. and it and it is lower right, right. significantly but it's different when it's a god or goddess at mm-hmm. least for how we do things here because part of it's just simply convenience and part of it is this is how this is the space we got to work with, and we got to make this work. And exactly. Some some of it is the gods are just like, well, oh no, this works. Yeah, and some's going to depend <laughs> on your relationship with them, or even the mythos around them. So, like, I've got no problem putting an underworld uh, spirits altar on the floor because to me that doesn't it doesn't it's no sign of disrespect to them. For example, absolutely. The highest shelf I've got deities that are more what you would consider the 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 rulers or the the higher realm sort of deities. Now, there are exceptions, though. I have a very small heiress altar that I will never put lower than any other altar because that's asking for trouble. You mean you don't want a slight heiress? Well, you know, it seems like a bad idea. (laughs) Seems like a good idea at the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's one of those things. It's not... not, uh, that, that she's typically associated with upper world deities, but I'm not putting that altar lower than any of the other ones. Just oh, that because, makes sense. Just because she represents not only what she represents due to us and our family, because we do have, uh, on my wife's side of the family, we have Greco-Roman heritage, and so she speaks very powerfully to that side of the family mm-hmm. and that part of the bloodline. But just from her mythos, I'm not going to disrespect her, and also from my personal relationship with her, she is who I call on a lot of times to represent, you know, we're back to that conversation of all the people, all the ones that I forgot, all the spirits that I forgot. I'm back to that when I, it comes to working with Eris because she's a representative of all the spirits that I might forget to mention 
or that aren't usually mentioned and by including her I am I am by a level of default including the quote-unquote outsiders I'm, I'm not leaving anybody out and she is a great representation of not leaving anybody out that makes a great deal of sense I mean especially I have a very powerful relationship like that with Loki hmm. exactly yeah exactly yeah. Uh, what some might call outsider gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and, and it's really important, especially, it, you know, it's it's funny because when you're talking about the 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 hearth cultists, that that we are going out of our way to make sure we include outsiders, but at the same point in time, whether it's it's Peruvian mythology or Norse or any number of other ones around the world there are deep rooted traditions about how you treat people when they come to your door looking for help looking for shelter mm-hmm. from the storm when and and we would be really remiss to ignore those lessons yeah and i, I think it's worth pointing out that not yeah you're not going to get along with every god and that's okay yeah exactly you know there are some people who have a completely acrimonious relationship to Loki, and that's fine. There are some who look at Odin and are like, oh, hell no. They'll <laughs> offer up prayers to say Freya or Freyr. Mm-hmm. And that is totally legit. Like, you don't have to like every god. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there, there's a difference of reverence and respect versus I get along with this one. Yeah. And I... Yeah, exactly. I, I try really hard to make sure that, you know, especially if I'm in a, in a situation where there's other polytheists and pagans around who are like, oh, no, Loki. I'm like, okay, look, let's be real here. Are you okay with Odin? Because uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of his myths. <laughs> well, I mean, if we if we relate this down to a very human, and I, and I forgive me if, it, if it's uh, inappropriate to bring it down to human levels, but at a human level, like there are people I get along great with, but if you think I'm going to ask them for help in my life, you're crazy. Yep. And I yeah. and, and it it is a similar thing. It's not the same, but it's a similar. It's an analogy I'm going to draw there. But it's you know, just because I get along with somebody doesn't mean they're great for me. And right. just because somebody's great for me doesn't mean I'm going to get along with them. It's one of those things. Yeah. So a classic example in my life is is Fenris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People will be shocked when I say, you know, I'm an Odinson, but I offer, offer cultist to Fenris. Well, what what they're not hearing when I say I'm offering cultist to Fenris is it's like a propitiatory offering to please don't eat me, or you know, let's let's wait a bit before breaking those chains and eating my father, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. not necessarily. Hi, I am very affectionate. I think you're a wonderful pupper. Uh, no, <laughs> he's gonna eat my dad. Right. Uh, to put it in more human terms. Um, you know, and in terms of well, in very human terms, you know, Ragnarok, you know, him and his kin, you know, between burning the world and everything else, I mean, he he's Odin. Uh, do, do I have great affection for Fenris? N- affection, no. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Respect, yes. And I, I think the ADF does a good job of incorporating this aspect of. Uh, honoring the outsiders by making propitiatory offerings for them to kind of uh, the way the way that I have understood it is kind of a please stay in your lane, <laughs> right? <laughs> please well, don't come eat us or what have you. And that, it's, that but is it's... how some groups approach it, definitely. And then, and one of the places that I I started working with airs that's how 
how it was done. It was basically an offering of, of you know, please don't mess these things up. Now, I, I got to admit, I've come to love airs. I, I adore working mm. with airs. I've done, for someone who is not actually uh, sporting very much Greco-Roman uh, uh, bloodlines there, I've done a great deal of, of interaction with Ares, and I, I adore her to death. Now, I'm not overly fond of her brother Ares, but that one is one that I'll make offerings to out of a great deal of respect and reverence, and and uh, because I don't want unnecessary conflict or warfare in my life. Now, I want someone that's on my side, should that come down to that situation, but we don't necessarily, he and I don't necessarily see eye to eye. I'm a much more peaceful by nature person than than he enjoys either. I don't think he enjoys my company an awful lot, to be honest with you, but the, the offerings are there and the reference is there. Yeah, I think that's, that's you know, it, you bring that up and I think that's something really important for polytheists and, and animists and people of all stripes really to think about is that you're not really going to gel with every god, goddess, spirit out there. Mm -hmm. And to think you will is to be perfectly honest, I think is a kind of hubris that you yeah, should yeah. gel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if we acknowledge that these gods and spirits are individual beings, you know, if you have a real good affinity with say bear, salmon might not want to work with you. Or if it does, it's going to be in very certain constrained relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, myself, I, I don't work with salmon outside of specific food based contexts. And that might have to do with my, my relationship with bear. Yeah, and so when you actually look at like the web of relationships you hold, some 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 options are just off the table by nature of what you worship and how you worship. Yeah, exactly. And that's not bad. It's just actions have consequences, mm -hmm. really. You know, mm -hmm. rain falls on everybody's head. <laughs> right, right. That's about it. You know, I I know for for some folks, developing relationships with some of these these gods that are looked at as liminal or outsider is really hard because it's often these gods are there and they, they threaten the social order in myths, but they also help renew it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Loki's a classic example of this, but I love Loki very, very deeply and fondly. And he, he through his hands, I have had so many blessings that to, to even think about excising him from my life, Odin would have to go too. And that's just, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, you think? Eh, a little bit. Every now and again. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, so, when you get down to it, you know, your relationships with the gods are just that. And, and mm -hmm. can, in, in fact, be individual and communal at the same time. Right. You know, we, we hold, in Mimir's Runner Kindred, we worship openly we worship many Jotun and for some folks in the heathen communities that's going to be a non-starter right exactly yeah they're going to be like nope this is not happening yeah you know and then on the other side of things you have uh, uh, certain kindreds that are absolutely aligned against many of the holy powers we hold dearest so it's like uh, never the twain shall meet on a lot of these things mm -hmm. it doesn't mean we're not all heathen it just means that our relationships are just that and so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure in your, your own work with the Peruvian spirits, there's certain ones that, that certain students get along with really well and certain ones that are very challenging, but yeah. you've still got to do the work. Yeah, the teaching weekend we just did um, uh, incorporated some of that because 
know, the, the, the short version is that we all have essentially a, a large spirit that kind of is our boss that kind of owns us to a certain degree if I can if I can borrow some language and uh, owns our head I should say but um, yeah there's other ones that you're, you're almost never going to hear from that or, or that you don't get along with and then even working with some of the the spirits the the Anikarpai spirits the spirits of like uh, of a hummingbird or, or jaguar or something like that of Otorongo jaguar there's a uh, um, there's some that you get along with really well, and there's some that are only there to kick your behind. And those kinds of relationships, you, you just... The funny part is you just don't know until you know. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. until you're in the middle of it sometimes, you don't know how this is going to shake out. You can go in with all this great intent, and I've always been this type of person, so I'm going to get along with this spirit greatly. And like... No, yeah, the hell you, you will. Yeah, you might have the exact opposite reaction like you know sometimes once again if i can draw the 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 parallel to being human is there's there are times when the person you least get along with is the person that has a similar personality of yours and it's because you're bouncing off each other you've got the same shadow issues or whatever mm-hmm. and when we're talking about spirits when we're talking about deity it's just magnified that much where you're just you're getting in some ways your best, in some ways your worst aspects just bounce back at you with such force that you can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, there's certain gods and spirits you're never going to get along with, not just because of personality conflicts, but because your interests are just simply at loggerheads. Um, there's entire groups of spirits that I will never get along with, and that's okay. Right. It, um, you know, some, a simple one is the spirits of disease. Oh, I will yeah. not get along with Great these example. spirits. I will probably never get along with these spirits. That's not my job. Well, and if we look <laughs> at the if we look at the historical texts and and myths and stories that were passed down from once again from from every culture around the world, I'll let you in on a little secret. Some of these gods are assholes. <laughs> Sorry, yep. that's just the way it is. Yeah, and some of these just simply don't have human interests in mind when not they do things at all. Not even a little. And I mean, it's like that's part of the problem with like dealing with the Titans or the Jotun is that that although all deities and spirits of that size and magnitude have a, a an order of magnitude where them interacting with humanity can be problematic to begin with. I think that's why the Jotun and the Titans get associated with natural disasters and those kinds of phenomenon so often because their interests are so far outside of humanity they don't even notice half the stuff they're doing nor do they care yep <laughs> I mean the the root of Jotun is in uh, eating devourer and they are primal forces they are primal beings uh <laughs> Their, their concerns are, generally speaking, just not human. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that many of the Jotun that we do worship have enough mm, human-ish interests that we can get along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, for, well, for instance, the classic one is I don't worship Bergelmir. And maybe someday I will, but I don't worship Bergelmir. But he is the progenitor of the Frost Giants post 
uh, Ymir's death where the worlds were flooded. And him and his wife were the only two frost thirsts to survive. Um, Bergelmer is not somebody I hold cultists with. <laughs> he has great animosity toward Odin from everything I've read and understand. Right. Uh, I don't hold worship cultists with Fenris. It's more of a, I recognize your presence and why you are here. You know, there are certain, it, that's, that is okay. You're not supposed to get along with it. I, I really don't think everybody's supposed to get along with every god or goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, again, you know, spirits of disease. I, uh, I have no cause to truck with spirits of disease at this point, especially when much of my job is to maintain sacred space, clean space. So, you know, it's not just being, you know, a spirit worker and, oh, I need to maintain spiritual healthiness. It's, I use antibacterial soap. (laughs) Right. Spirits of disease are something I want to keep at bay. I use physical and spiritual barriers to make this happen. So... You know, and, and for some people working with spirits of disease, pestilence, and that kind of thing, that's part of their job. You know, mm-hmm. you think of epidemiologists and under, maybe not working with, maybe that's a little a bridge too far, but at least understanding these spirits is part of different job sets. It's, uh, it's funny because with the, the Peruvian traditions, um, the, the Inca, although there was many tribes that, that predated them and a lot of those tribes traditions are incorporated into the Inca belief systems Um, the Inca had so really uh, conquered the area which they dwelled I don't have a lot of historical or or religious texts around spirits necessarily that they have conflict with in a weird way, the, probably the largest spiritual conflict that they have is with uh, with Christ, with the followers of Christianity, when the conquistadores came. And that's not something that's necessarily in their mythology, but as a, mm-hmm. a spiritual conflict of, you know, the natives down there were forced to convert. And even to this day, they have kind of that dual religion in a lot of areas. Um, mm-hmm. So one of my biggest conflicts in, in a spiritual practitioner is just getting to a place in neutrality where I didn't have open hostility towards uh, towards Christianity or Christian worship. That was a huge challenge for me, and that that's one of those examples right there. There's certain spirits that I'm I have found a way eventually because other people needed it to eventually be able to work with some of the archangels, but as far mm-hmm. as working with Christ or or some of those other uh, deities, there's. I just don't think I'll ever be able to do it. No, I, I can recognize them, but I don't think I could ever have any sort of praxis with them. Yeah, I mean, I've got Catholic ancestors, but um, the only times I will ever step foot back in a church is if somebody dies. Yeah. So there's 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 relationships that I chose to walk away from in becoming a polytheist, you know, and. Every, like I said, every relationship has consequences. You know, rain falls on all heads. And, you know, I'm a polytheist. Monotheists don't have room for us. Mm-hmm. So there's that, that clear, distinct choice there that I made when I became what I am today. And so, you know, that old saw about how, you know, 
a door shuts, a window opens. Well, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard sometimes to, to make that connection. And, and uh, it, it, I'm just, certain times it's just not going to happen, no matter how much we'd like it to. It's just never going to mm -hmm. happen that way. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I had a pop song, you know, we will never, ever, ever be getting back together. <laughs> um, I might have, have a, a wellspring of, of respect for Christ, but uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm no longer Catholic. Right. You know, about the, the place where I finally ended up coming to was a place where I love some of my friends and relatives love for that that spiritual path. I can love their love for it, but I could never love it myself. Mm -hmm. And and I and I can only really even do that because you know, not to raise all kinds of dogs of war about the you know what what feels more truthful or not, but I can just tell you that on a, I can do that from an individual level because I can see the the good and the joy and the love in people where the the larger you know the religions mm -hmm. and the teachings you know because not not all of those teachings were all hunky dory that uh, that that I can I can do it on an individual level with people that I know but you might as well forget it at a larger deity or institutional level yeah I mean I mean if that makes <laughs> any sort of sense at all yeah I mean look at all the papal bulls mm-hmm the doctrine of discovery was based on papal bulls. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. That they haven't been rescinded. Here they we have are, not you been know, rescinded. recording this the day after Indigenous Peoples Day, and and yeah, exactly. These things have never been rescinded. They're never. They're they're still actively going on. Where, uh, you know, our own government and, and and quote unquote Christians within it are still trying to undermine all those treaties. We have got some really horrible examples going on in Michigan right now with not mm -hmm. respecting tribal treaty rights with the with these oil pipelines, and it's just. Ah, it's a whole different rant that I could. We've already ranted on some, and I could probably rant on a bunch more. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure in a future episode we will we'll dedicate time to it. Yeah, exactly. Trying to get some of those people lined up to interview too, so that are that are mm -hmm. really actively involved in that. So, you know, who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, and I I think that you know, kind of of taking this in a in a different direction, you know, towards the ancestors. There there are certain classes of ancestors that do not want to work with me. Oh yeah, you know that that's not talked about very often, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, well, we we are very. I mean, even in our own our own conversations, we can sometimes be a little hum, a human, this world centric, mm -hmm. but we don't take the opposite view. Like there are certain ancestors who, because I walked away from Christ, will never speak to me again. There are certain people in this life who, when I stopped being a Catholic, when I became a pagan and a polytheist there was a wall that went up between us that may never come down in my lifetime or maybe in the several generations lifetime. And I just have to accept that, you know, um, frequently when, when people talk about, well, we need to decolonize our mindset. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not just, you know, you got to unpack your privilege. It's not just, Oh, you got to think about the implications of your actions on the land. You need to really, really think through, what your spiritual relationships look like, and for me, that's yep. that's the that's for me that's the the foundation, the ground, because everything else springs out of that mindset. You know, um, saying mini wakuni doesn't mean anything if you don't actually believe that water is sacred. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the word sacred doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in sacred things. You know, uh, if, if all the word sacred means is a thing that you hold reverence for, but you don't have a living relationship with, it's an empty term. Right. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, embracing the gods of different traditions, uh, becoming a polytheist or an animist or mm -hmm. what have you, there are certain ancestors who will never speak to you again. Mm -hmm. there, there are certain paths that are utterly closed to you. And you just have to accept that that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Right. You cannot be all because, things to all people or all spirits or all traditions or... Exactly. And and I'm not sure you'd want to be because the initiatory right? requirements of different paths require utterly different things. I will probably never be a, uh, an agori. Uh, or guru or any of the other various things that are required for different Hindu uh, religious initiations. Mm -hmm. Dharma's really not my path. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, for, and I, I know that not all Hindus are, are vegetarian, so I'm, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. You know, uh, the, the no-meat requirements would just, you know, for me it's just a non-starter to begin with. Mm -hmm. But it's it's more than that. Like, the spiritual outlook I have, it precludes a lot of relationships that maybe in another life will be very fruitful, but certainly not in this one. And that's that's not good, it's not bad, it just is. It just is, yep. You know, and um, you know, no longer being a Christian. You know, what people don't think about a lot, and I really wish they would, is understand that as a very firm Catholic, I understood that when I went to the gods, I was giving up something very precious, paid for in blood. You know, I was giving up salvation. And, you know, we talk at length on this show about Odin's sacrifice for wisdom. Okay, well, let's let's think about this narrative from, from the perspective of a Catholic becoming a pagan. Mm -hmm. you're, you're giving up a spot in heaven. You're intentionally saying, I don't care whether or not you write my name in the book of life. You know? And so that fear that I had at the time, while still walking towards the gods I worship now, was very palpable. And, and for me, uh, an utter, utterly needed part was having a good multi-hour conversation with Yahweh on why I was following these other gods now. You you know, know, that's like, a, a, that's a, if I can if I jump in there, it really strikes me that that's an interesting thought because in a lot of the the pagan and polytheist writings that I've, I've seen and even the conversations I've had with people, a lot of them will really focus on the fact that their family or, or former community won't accept them anymore and and dwell on that persecution which don't get me wrong there is definitely persecution that happens but dwelling mm -hmm. on that persecution instead of looking at it as the sacrifice that they made yeah that's a that's a mindset change that could be quite powerful yeah it was for me because it, it placed it from loss to gift mm -hmm. you know 
And if you're going to start a new spiritual path, starting out with the right foot forward is, is of utter importance. So I, I would really hazard, especially converts, to think of it not as losing community, even though you, you are losing community. You're losing connections. You're losing a lot. But what you're, what you're doing for your gods and for the communities you're coming into is, I am sacrificing you know, and when you're talking about a community worth two billion people and a multinational, international, connected religious community, and you are giving all of that up, the practical and the spiritual benefits, to follow gods that whose pathways are half reconstructed, half you know revived with contact. You're entering into a big, big space of unknowns and scary things. And I think we don't do ourselves any credit, nor do we do our gods any credit, for reaching out across that gap to us and saying, it's okay, it's going to be okay. And if it's not going to be okay, it's at least we're here. (laughs) (laughs) We are here and we are waiting for you. Um. And and for me, the the first god beyond Yahweh that bridged that gap between us was Bridget. Um, she was the the first goddess I worshipped, and she opened up her hand to me. First through my wife, well now my wife, then my girlfriend. And when I eventually took her hand up, it was terrifying, frightening, but it was also exhilarating and powerful and deep in ways that Yahweh never touched. Mm-hmm. And so when we give that space over to the gods, that is a very powerful liminal space to be in because we are be- literally between worlds at that point. Right, right. And you're choosing to step into a whole new one where there's, you know, I mean, the theological foundations of modern polytheism, we're working on them, but we're, we, we're reconstructing, we're reviving, we're, we're not where the church is now. We don't have institutions of power, we don't have established, hard, learned masters of theology in these different disciplines, we don't have all this backing. But what we do have is living, powerful, deep relationships with our gods. We have people who are willing to do the work and set their feet on the path. And so, yeah, really think about the the gift the gods have given you in, in reaching out to you. And it doesn't matter whether you're a layperson or not, you know, a uh, spiritual specialist or not. The, the fact of the matter is, is that even if you're not having daily occurrences with the holy powers, the fact that you're still walking this path and still doing the work is testament to the daily choice you make <laughs> to, right. to not do the easy thing and go back. Because they make it utterly easy to go back. Oh, all's forgiven. Come on back. Enjoy your Eucharist. <laughs> and I'm being rather flip about it, but let's let's be real here you know you as a catholic you go to confession which can be hard having done it on several occasions um 
you go through the sacrament of confession and then you're you're brought back into alignment with the body of Christ. Well, the body of Christ is 2 billion people strong. Of course that's going to be easier. Just by a matter of the sheer weight of people who are part of that community. Yeah, it was hard to leave that, but I had to. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a little easier for me to leave it, to be honest with you. My family tends to be yeah, very much a lot of spiritual explorers. Like, um, you know, automatically on my on my father's side of the family, they were a bunch of Lutherans, and on my mother's side of the family, uh, just within the last generation, uh, we've had several people decide that they were atheists, and that's fine. And and uh, have a pagan in myself, a heathen, a polytheist, and then I have a cousin that went and became a very devout Muslim and. So we've been all over the map. So that side of the family is very easy to kind of, even the grandparents, when they came to the United States, it was really funny because the, uh, you know, in Europe, you're Catholic. That's, that's just it, especially in, in the area of uh, Pol areas of Poland, Yugoslavia, they came from. And when they came to the United States, um, they ended up in the Chicago area. And it was, to them, it was very, uh, very... I want to say jarring because when they were in Europe they were taught by nuns they went to places while the cathedrals were very beautiful all the the priests and the nuns that they dealt with were very poor people and they came here and you know everybody's driving all the priests are driving Cadillacs and have huge houses and, and there's gold rings and all this other stuff that they just couldn't quite so they ended up even though they I think my grandmother, till her dying day, considered herself a Catholic. I, boy, I'd be hard pressed to think of a single time she went to mass. They ended up all going to a little Methodist church out here in the countryside because it was at least, you know, down and dirty in farm country that they could relate to. Mm. That makes so, sense. So it was a little easier for me to just kind of go, yeah, I don't think this is for me. And that's not to say I didn't look. I mean, I did end up going. Uh, for a while the catechism classes and that sort of thing i do i do actually give some credit there to the catholic church and and some of the catholicism i explored because and i think you and i have talked about this before that that was a an integral part of learning how to worship what does the practice of worship look like what do the what is do what are things like devotionals and daily prayers and things like that look like what do they feel like and so you know as far as mm -hmm. I will give Catholicism some credit along with early exploration of, of Wicca for like figuring out what the toolbox looked like until spirit itself took over and said, oh yeah, all this other stuff that you've been doing, you ignore that and do this. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a while there, it was quite useful. So I, I do give, I do give it credit in that regard. It's just, like I said, not a path I could follow anymore. And I mean, <laughs> Like I like I said, you know, you sometimes you just you have to shut some doors. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, there's yeah. I was gonna say we we I don't know if we've hit this topic hard enough. I don't know. Should we should we take a second and kind of explore yeah. some of the other things going on in our lives real quick? Yeah, let's let's do that. All right, all right. Before we do that, I want to remind everybody that's listening that the easiest way to listen to the show and to give us feedback is to download the Anchor app for your phone. You can get it for your Google phone. You can get it for your iPhone. It's an app that allows you to listen to the show and you can send us little voicemails that 
that can give us some feedback. But we're also available on iTunes, uh, Google Podcast, um, Stitcher, just all kinds of different formats. You can you can find out more about that on our Anchor page or our Tumblr page. And please like us on Facebook. Share that Facebook a little bit around. You can find Sarenth and I both on Twitter. He's at Sarenth. I'm at James at the Owl. And uh, you know, find us and follow us on social media and recommend us to a few people because that really helps. And give us a, uh, some reviews too. If you can review us on iTunes and give us a good rating, helps bump us up quite a bit. So we'll get more visibility, so people will see us, and we really appreciate that. So get that out of the way a little bit. Um, so I know you've been really busy, Sarah. Anything else that you've been kind of exploring or reading, media, television shows, anything like that that's been catching your fancy lately? So I'm I'm going through uh, this book anthology of uh, of essays called The Academy of Odin, and <laughs> it's it's this one author's anthology of work from different periods in his career. Um exploring Norse myth and religion so the exploration of uh, I just got through a section where he talks about the impact of oral culture on written documents so like there's stuff that we have from Saxo Grammaticus that corresponds to later writings uh, especially in regards to like Hjalmar's death uh, song um and various extrapolations and things that he makes of these different sources. His basic point in the section I just finished was that it, it, there's a transmission difference between the written word and transferring from oral into written. And here's the corroborating sources we've got for these songs. We can see how different elements of the story were added to or dropped. And he it gets into like a lot of minutia and I'll, I'll be honest, some of that stuff is just in one, one eye out the other. <laughs> um, but what I really I take home from his work, and this is not an easy book to get through. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's dense. He references a lot of other stuff that I don't have access to, but suffice to say what, what I get out of the material is a really important look at the, the culture of the ancient heathen peoples that he's specifically studying. In this case, it's a lot of Icelandic lore. Mm -hmm. So he's looking at you know the Landnamabók. He's looking at uh, Egil saga um, and what different saga interpretations of like. So there's this stock character in some of the sagas called the noble heathen who doesn't actually worship gods and is a very noble character and what he's thinking is going on here is that there's stripping of the gods away from the noble heathen so that he's more palatable to a Christian audience. Okay. You see this with Beowulf. You see this with uh, Egil. Mm -hmm. you, uh, and, and so the, the purpose of this is to make a palatable heathen character that flies under the Christian radar, basically. Gotcha. That exudes these, these really... Uh, the, because all these guys, these are men for the most part. Who uh, exudes all these virtues of manlyhood and what it is to be powerful and all this other stuff, but palatable enough for a Christian audience that you, it, the, the author is not implying that idol worship is a good thing. Hmm. So it's really funny how the sources that he's exploring dance around the issue of well, these are still heathens, and 
it's implied that the audience understands what heathenry is about since the, most of this stuff is written down you know post conversion and conversion was only like 100 to 200 years ago so a lot of these people still had some living memory of what the old times were like so it's it's really interesting how the exploration of the material goes from oral into written and then from there it, it disseminates into what at that point in time was common skaldic and poetic uh, expression because most of what he's looking at generally speaking the stuff you're looking at Beowulf is written like you're supposed to be like reading this aloud to a crowd mm -hmm. most of the old sources we've got are written in such a way that they're supposed to be spoken you know, there's alliteration there. There's uh, the Kennings, for instance, are supposed to conjure up images. They're supposed to make the, the old Norse and old Icelandic. It's tightening up the language so that you have multi-layered meanings. You know, uh, a field of of crows is a battlefield. Um, you know, uh, crashing waves might be two armies coming together. You know, crashing waves on a plane might be two armies hitting each other. Uh, you know. Even uh, George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows, the, the very title of his book, is a kenning, an alliteration. Um, oh, right. You know, just kind of taking a modern view of things. So the the author's main point, in, in at least the last section I read, was that the, there's a lot of oral history that's being conveyed in very concise terms, especially in the Old Norse and Old Icelandic. And that was because... Um, of two two reasons one is just the way the language worked and how the alliteration worked but the other is that um you're telling a, a story to people and you are both beowulf and uh the particular story he picks up in comparison to it with uh hilmar and all that the audience is actually supposed to envision themselves as being in the mead hall right with okay. Be with beowulf yeah, makes sense you know and the the speaker actually uh, takes up kind of the, the the role of Odin or of the skald in whatever tale he's telling. You know, so you're you're literally casting the people around you in this role. So it's not the, it's not just a drama. You're talking. This is not just like some sort of spoken word thing where you're up in front of an audience and you're just talking. It's also it's an involved process. Like. The, the the separation between audience and participant is very thin on the ground really when you get down to it fascinating stuff uh, it's really cooking my brain I'm taking notes on it some of this <laughs> some of the stuff is getting incorporated into workshops it was so funny we had a conversation at our house about Beowulf recently but it was a lot more lowbrow oh yeah my my youngest daughter Raven she's uh they're studying Beowulf in her classes and uh She's telling me about how all the other students aren't taking it seriously and and just how she's reading the story and that sort of thing. And then um, and then the, she was telling me about how they watched The 13th Warrior. And I'm like, why would you watch The 13th Warrior? <laughs> and the teacher's philosophy is that every Beowulf movie has been so terrible that if he's going to show a movie that's roughly based on Beowulf, it might as well be entertaining. <laughs> Which killed me. He's not wrong. He's not I have wrong. Yet, I've yet to find a Beowulf. Which is amazing because it's such a crazy, wild story that it just seems like 
it would be easier to do a film adaption than what it is. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, has it been done as a video game? Maybe it would be much better uh, as a video game. I don't know. Cause it, I, saw that, I saw that god-awful Robert Zemeckis version, and I, was, <laughs> I laughed through most of well, it. Well, just what you're saying about how, how it's approached and the storytelling's approached, I'm wondering, like, you know, if maybe... Maybe if Beowulf was set up as something that was a video game for, for like a 3D environment, like the Oculus Rift or something like mm-hmm. that, that it would be a much more effective story in our modern culture. It might be. I don't know. I, I mean, we, there are certain stories that are just really hard to translate. Yeah, yeah. And, and for some stupid reason, Beowulf just happens to draw the short end of the straw on that. <laughs> like, I really wish we had Professor Tolkien around because he had it right. He'd show up to class to to do Beowulf, like dressed in chainmail and stuff. Like, the, what I love about Tolkien in this regard is that you know he's he's the consummate like geek for the rest of us. <laughs> and so, like, yeah, I don't know if you could ever capture that magic, but I would certainly love to see somebody try and. Like like the teacher's rubric is, you know, at least if it sucks, it's entertaining anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so funny your your entertainment options, though. I, I have to tell you, Sarah, they are so much more highbrow than mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you're reading this in depth book with all these Beowulf references, and I'm like, um, man, did you see that Fox Studios has optioned Dresden Files for a series? <laughs> Actually, I did. I'm very, I'm interested to see how that turns out. Yeah, me too. I have to admit, I'm kind of intrigued. I, it's all going to hinge on who they cast for the various roles. That, oh, no, let's totally bring back Blackthorn. He was so good at that. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. Do with sci-fi. I couldn't do it because I, I had not read the books when the, the original series was out, so I never watched the original series. In the time that that I've read all the novels now and I, I would be interested in a series, it's been long past and I only know that actor as his role in TV's Arrow. I could never see him as anything else other than the character oh, from no. the Arrowverse. I could there's no way I could see him as Dresden. And see, I've never actually sat down and watched Arrow. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, see, my 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 son was like, you know, this isn't bad. So I watched the first couple seasons and and it's it's a, it's a superhero soap opera, you know, don't get me wrong, but there's no way he plays like the uh the chief of police and Black Canary's father and I I could never see him Oh as my god, role. really? Yeah, exactly. So there's no way. I mean, it was hard enough that the the uh um character that they chose for Deadshot, the actor is the same one that plays uh uh, uh the druid in the Sword of uh, Shannara, Chronicles of Shannara. Uh what's the druid's name? Uh, my brain's escaping me, but oh same my. same actor. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm wait, wait, watching wait, 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 wait. Wait, Will Smith? No, 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 not Will Smith. What's the... Um... No, no, you're thinking of the movie. I'm thinking of the television series. Oh. That's where the disconnect <laughs> is. Uh, yeah, no, the French, the Fresh Prince of Shannara. Yes, this is what we're working on. Oh, my god. Let gosh. me tell you a story about trolls and orcs. No, I have to... <laughs> no, I... Um... I can't think of the actor's name now, but he, he played the same character in the, the Chronicles oh, of Shannara wow. television show that was on MTV for a while and then uh, also played uh, Deadpool. So, or not, uh, 
Deadshot? Yeah, Deadshot. So it was like, um, I don't know, it's very hard to deal with that transition, especially because these are shows that are airing at the same time. So it's like, mm-hmm. are you about to shoot somebody with a gun, use a katana, or cast a spell? I'm really kind of confused here. So Do all three. <laughs> Why not, right? It's sort um, of fiction. It's all good. But, you know, one thing I did discover that I've been loving the heck out of, and, and um, I'm... I'm when my kids were watching it, I happened to wander in in the middle of an episode, and I sat down. It's uh, on Netflix right now, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a British-Canadian animated series called Hilda. Have you seen this at all? No, it is on my to-watch list. Oh my I have gosh, heard nothing but good amazing, things. Amazing, because I mean, it is a perfect show for kids because it's it's very innocent. And the the protagonist Hilda, she is. It's one of those things for kids where there's a lot of morality stories about how you get along with other people and that sort of thing. But the the setting that it's in has giants and trolls and all these other things. And so it is, it's a world steeped in, in mythical creatures and, and magic. And so having her explore this world in a way where she has to make friends and allies with a lot of these people. She has to understand, you know, instead of being afraid of the giants, we have to understand what their motivation is and why this one giant did this and and that sort of thing. And then realize that to the the gnomes that are living around your grandfather's cabin, you're the giant that's tromping around things, you know, or the elves, I should say, that are living in grandfather's cabin. So it's a really beautiful uh, illustrated series on on building really magical and spiritual relationships, but it's done in a really entertaining kids way. I mean, I, I think if you, especially if kids of a certain age where they really like cartoons that are of this nature and you're trying to teach them some of your spiritual traditions, I think sitting them down and watching this series would actually be hugely beneficial. I'll definitely be watching it. So... <laughs> I think you're like the fourth person to recommend this to me, so this is definitely on my to-watch list. It's now. on the short list now, huh? Yeah. I mean, so my, my kindred mates got me into this really bawdy Norwegian comedy called Norseman. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one floating around, too. I haven't watched oh, that yet, though. Oh, my gods, it's hilarious. And, and more historically accurate in places than the Vikings TV show from history. You think? Oh, my gosh. So... I mean, let's be honest. All right, I watched the first couple of seasons of Vikings. I did enjoy it. Don't get me wrong, but at the same point in time, it wasn't a hell of a lot more accurate than the 13th Warrior. This is true. I mean, let's be honest. This is true. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, thank you, History Channel, for giving me something entertaining to watch, but you, this show should really probably be on another network because it's about as credible as the damn Mer- Mermaid show was. Right. Yeah, it. Uh, <sighs> Big sigh. <laughs> like, like, I like the show. The aesthetic is awesome. the The fight scenes are amazing. I love the characters. Historically right. accurate, not a chance in hell. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, to to be fair, what they're where they're drawing Ragnar Lothbrok from is like three different sources they smash together yeah, into I mean, one. You know. It's like it's like taking every Marvel timeline and just kind of going, ah, screw it, slap. Which, which they've done in the movies, yeah. You know, that's not a big deal. But but this is this is also like you know pseudo history. They're trying. They're supposed to be like you know the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <sighs> so. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, like I said, I do 
loved the show, but I, at least the first few seasons, I, I have to mm -hmm. admit, I haven't watched the last couple because it got to the point where it's kind of like, oh, it's the betrayal of the week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and to, to be uh, fair, uh, the last two seasons, I, I watched season, I think we're on five now, so I watched most of season four. I haven't picked up season five yet, so it's it's on my to-watch list. Um, and speaking of Marvel... Uh, so, you know, I from that really highbrow now to the really lowbrow, I watched Venom. <laughs> loved it. Did you really? Yeah, I haven't seen that it's, one yet either. Okay. I, yeah, let me put this caveat in there. It's, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's it's not because it's a great movie. <laughs> That's what everybody's saying. They're like, it's not a great movie, but if you like this or that. Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that I grew up with Venom, I like Venom as a character. I had the the six issue small volume run. I had uh, my aunt gifted it to me for Christmas because she knew I was into comics, and so like I've got the the old six issue. Yeah, yeah. And I I like Venom as a character. Maybe it's because you know he was really edgy, and it was the early '90s, and I was a kid. And, <laughs> you know, he was the only early '90s edgy character that wasn't wearing. Uh, uh... A bandolier of ammo around his thigh, Rob Liefeld. Thank you so much. Right, but... thanks. <laughs> Ironically enough, the character was made by Todd McFarlane. So oh yeah, McFarlane was the big one. Yeah, with that, with that kind of the big vest. Don't forget a big vest. We gotta have a big vest in there. Oh, Jesus. Vest with pockets. I mean, oh, but I mean, like Venom. <laughs> Venom was so the, the movies. Like Tom Hardy is an amazing actor. Uh huh. And some of the best scenes are where he's just talking to, well, it looks like himself. Um, you know, so my wife and I, I took time out today, just went and saw it, and we, we enjoyed ourselves. That's good. Um, it's it's good stuff. If you're looking for anything deep and intellectual, don't look here. It was a really good pop <laughs> flick. You know, uh, yeah. the action scenes, when they get to action scenes, are good. So I, I've never been a huge really, Venom sort of guy. I don't know. I'm just... It's weird how my comic book tastes have changed over the years mm. and how they haven't. You know, like some characters, like, I, I'm sorry, I'll just never be a Deadpool or Venom person. It's just not me. But I, I do ha find That's it interesting, fair. like, looking at my own psyche, how things have changed. Like, the, the big one for me, the most obvious one for me is, like, Superman and Batman. When I was a kid, it was all about Batman, right? Batman. Batman's awesome. He's dark and he's he's a normal human that can fight anything and he's rich and he's, you know, got all this other stuff going on and he's just bad man, you know what I mean? And then but as an adult, um I realized at a certain point in time that I really came bored with Batman. I think it's because, you know, as a kid you've got that certain sense of powerlessness and you'd like to be able to overcome that. Now as an adult I really relate a lot more to Superman in the sense that as an adult, I have a lot more ability. I have a lot more strength. I have a lot more ways that I, I could do really horrible things with the skills and abilities and powers and, and, and things I have access to, and I choose not to. And so for some weird reason, I relate a lot more with Superman now than, than I did for just those reasons. He has all these godlike powers and chooses them to be as human as he possibly can. And, and as an adult, I find that a lot more interesting. See, that's hilarious. I'm the exact opposite way. <laughs> really? Yeah, I gel with Batman way better than I do soups. 
Um, you know, I, I, I like that Batman sees the grittiness and the, the horror for the world of what it is. I mean, Superman, to be perfectly honest, always seemed to be like a Boy Scout with a, just a permanent sunshine strapped right up his ass. Well, he used, to be, he used to be written that way, so that's a fair argument. But I, I the as writers have progressed, there's definitely been a lot of, of issues where he, he just basically says he's trying to make the world a better place, and it's not a matter of he doesn't see the grittiness he, or, or the gray areas. He definitely sees them. He just, you know, I think, and I can kind of agree with this, that Bruce is kind of lost to those shadows. Bruce Wayne will never find his way out of those shadows. Yeah. And as well, an adult, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't want to live in those shadows all my life. That's fair. That's a fair critique. I mean, but to, to me, the, I don't know. He is uh, Superman has always for me been this kind of unrelatable character. Mm-hmm. Like not because of his, his immigrant story, not because of anything in particular, but, and maybe this has to do more with the writers that I was reading at the time growing up with, but he always had this, the only thing that actually whooped his ass was magic or kryptonite and he was nigh invulnerable the the power set he had was whatever the writers wanted him to be um with batman you know he could be broken he could be killed there's always this element of his mortality is on the line now granted you know they're trying yeah, to make how a buck so that actually it's happen, not going right? to kill him but for some reason I, I relate so much better to batman than I do superman and I think it has to be part. It has to do with the, the Batman I grew up with wasn't like grim, dark Miller. It was Paul Dini and uh, Bruce Timms. That's true. That's a, that's a lot more Batman. fair. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the super dark versions of Batman have never been as interested in me as the world's greatest detective versions of Batman. Yeah, but the thing is, like. <laughs> In Paul Dini and Bruce Timm's writing, he actually starts to like really enjoy actually being both Batman and Bruce Wayne. There's a uh, the grim dark crap they do with Batman does rub me the wrong way. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's the opposite problem of the sunshine shining out of his ass problem they have with Supes. <laughs> um, I find Superman the most interesting when he's pre- presented with moral quandaries and he questions who and what he is in his place yeah. in the world. Yeah, that's exactly um, how the good writers it, have to handle him, too, because you're, like you said, he is so powerful that uh, the only way that they they really have great storylines with him is when they're pushing his his morals or making him think about things. That it's not always... when it, They have to give him issues that he can't punch his way out of, necessarily. And that's a far more fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, uh, I, I have to hand. I think it was Grant Morrison who did All Star Superman. I've read, I've read some of those, and I've seen the the adaptation uh, animation for it. Um, and again, the the thing with Soups is that he's just so good that he makes him hard for me to relate to. I love Batman's moral gray areas. I love his his edges and his curves um, so he catches a lot of crap for, for, for being Bruce Wayne and being a multi-billionaire well he could just fix poverty the thing is is what I think is really fascinating about his character is that for the writers who don't write him as some grim dark dickhead he actually does 
put a lot of his money into charitable foundations and getting people off the streets and getting jobs like in various comics uh, and depending on who's writing him and anywhere from a quarter to a half of his workforce are former convicts right um, it is funny though you know, Sarah because we were just having the debate on Facebook with a few people the other day about critiquing Elon Musk and, and, and Bruce Wayne falls under that same category he's the he's the epitome of the capitalist system I mean, he sure. wins because he's rich. That's pretty much his whole th- deal. He has enough time to train. He has enough wealth to train. Mm-hmm. He has enough wealth for the best equipment. He's He is the richest of the rich, and that's why he wins. See, for me, the the uh, the dichotomy between him and Supes has always been really funny because, you know, it, it, so the Skyrim fans will understand, you know, is it better to be good by the very nature or is it better to overcome your evil and become good that way um you know it's always this nature versus nurture thing between batman and superman you know um yes batman was born rich that is the superpower and i I think they had a very good time lampooning that in the recent justice league movie which was (laughs) uh, god awful uh still better than suicide squad oh my god don't get me started uh (laughs) I spent money on that in the theater, and I'm really sorry that I did. Oh, man. You were robbed by the Suicide Squad. It hurts. Anyway. (laughs) God damn it, Jared Leto. Um, See, you know, and and I think that uh, there's a thread I ran across that really broke down the, he's really not Elon Musk, he's really not just this spoiled rich kid Mm -hmm. kind of narrative. When he is not in somebody's hands like Miller, he's a broken human being who took the shards of himself and said, yep, okay, life sucks, let's let's make something of this. That, for me, has been the most inspiring part of Batman, is that he, his trauma shattered him, and he picked up the pieces and did something useful with right. it instead of just sitting there. Yeah, no, I can see uh, that. But... And... I mean, granted, you know, you can you can throw the the Jeff Bezos, uh, Elon Musk critique at him. I I think that a lot of what he so the Chris, Christopher Nolan movies explored this pretty well. Like part of the reason that Wayne Manor had fallen into dis, disrepair and that his company was doing so poorly was because he was insisting on developing clean technology, and he was fighting with his own board of directors on finishing all these charitable projects and doing zero cost. Uh, energy development, things like that, you know, that point of access. And so for me, you know, to be perfectly blunt, I've always liked Batman more than I have Superman because Superman was just this unrelatable, almost godlike figure who just couldn't be touched unless certain circumstances permitted it. I I still have a hard time because, like, a lot of people just don't write these characters very well anymore because they're yeah, trying for, for sure. such extremes. Yeah, yeah. that's that, that was really the essential problem with all the movies is that they don't they don't actually uh, uh, write to the areas that, that that help us explore these characters very well. They were, especially in the Batman versus Superman or Justice League or whatever, they're, oh, they're, they're writing for to try to set up this extended universe as opposed to really... I mean, that's, that's really what killed me about the Batman versus Superman or Justice League or any of the other ones is they, they didn't... It wasn't until the very end of Justice League when uh, uh, they were heading towards the climax, they really even seemed to finally, after several movies, get even an inkling of what Superman really was. It's like 
the argument I've had with people is they were it's like they were trying to deconstruct the character and explore his dark side first but that only works with a character you've established first and they never established him first yeah I, I think uh, so so for me Batman is so so damn cool interesting and all that in no small part because again the animated series actually did really good stuff with him oh, and yeah. gave oh my him God, the gave him a series was amazing yeah, and so for me, that's where I derive a lot of my affection for Batman as a character. Yeah, no, so like, yeah. like I need to put that out there in front. Like most of the modern incarnations of Batman, I have nothing to do with. Like my some of my fondest memories of Batman have to do with the animated series. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And so like, Bruce Wayne's a well-rounded human being. Yes, he's a billionaire, but he's also doing all this charitable work. He's doing all this advocacy work to get good people into office mm-hmm. to get program started da, 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 da. Yeah. i could go on i love Batman. <laughs> but in a similar i think in a similar vein to how much you like superman right my my affection for batman's there oh no don't get me wrong i actually think i probably like batman better i'm saying i i relate to superman much better as an adult oh okay well see and i've never related to superman yeah. well at all like i said like Okay, think about this from the perspective that you do. You've got children now. You've got a wife. You've got a job where you've got a lot of responsibility. You could choose to fuck all that up really easy. If you you could sure. you could easily destroy many people's worlds, and and you choose not to. And I think that's what I relate to more as an adult with Superman than I can relate to the situation that Batman finds himself in. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I mean, I, huh. I, I I would still say I probably prefer Batman from an enjoyment standpoint. Well, okay, let's be honest. Uh, uh, the last couple of years with DC Comics, I Batman uh, and uh, Superman both. I mean, not even the, we're not even talking about the movie universe, but the comics. It's all taken a backseat to Wonder Woman for me. She's the only character I'm really into right now in the DC comics. But yeah, her reboot was really good. Oh my god, the Justice League Dark stuff they're doing right now is amazing. Mm, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Not a character. Wonder Woman's not normally a character you'd associate with Justice League Dark, but now she's, she's thrown in there with Constantine and uh, Swamp Thing and a few other characters, and it's been, it's so, it's kicking ass so far. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, God, what do you think? The last, last DC comic I actually picked up and read uh, was one of the new 52. I actually, oh, gotcha. okay, so I really like what they did with the Bat family, and I'm really pissed off that they've kind of retconned it now. Oh, yeah, I know it. The Bat family was great. It was a great <laughs> concept. Like, like, okay, so this is where I get, I love Bruce Wayne's, like, whole shtick of picking up orphans. <laughs> like, he actually, like, made himself a family. Yeah, no, I can see that. That's and, a lot better the, character in a lot of ways. Well, the thing is, is, like, Read the original Bob Kane comics where he it's Batman with a gun. Like, read that. It was horrid in the same... <laughs> like, until he brought the boy Wonder on to mellow his ass out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that was like a year after Bob Kane started writing him. You know, so Robin's been there from the very beginning, and he's a, he's a mellowing agent, and he's also a humanizing agent, because otherwise, you know, it, you may as well just be writing the Spectre. Right, yeah, no, I gotcha, you're right. So... Like and I loved the Bat Family thing. I loved it. You know, you had you had uh, uh, God Nightwing, Red Robin, uh, Damian Wayne, Robin. You had Batwing, you had Batwoman, Batgirl, uh, and Oracle. And it was just this whole. You know, 
he made himself a damn family, and and there was things they went through. So it, it's almost like it, the family dynamic was was for me a really huge part of the selling point of why the that comic ran, that ran so well. And then they retcon the whole goddamn universe like they do every ten years. Yeah, I know the, they they're really now Marvel's getting in the craze too, where it's like, oh, it's been a two years we better start rebooting everything it's like oh my god we can't do this all the time but you know continuity doesn't pay for a lot of these groups anymore you know what i mean mm-hmm. well and now they're starting to play test ideas as opposed to writing the comics for the comics sake yeah exactly exactly so, so well <sighs> as much as i hate to do this my good friend i think we better wrap up this show for the evening all right. It was really good talking with you, brother. It was great talking with you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode. Uh, next week, Sarenth and I will get together for just a few minutes to introduce you to our interview. We'll be broadcasting our interview with Sanyan, and we're really excited to bring you that. If you have any guests that you'd like us to interview, or if you would like to see about being a guest on Around Grandfather Fire yourself, make sure you drop us an email. You can drop email uh, Sarenth at Sarenth at gmail.com or myself at Jim at thewanderingowl.com. Either one of those will get right through to us, and we can see about getting you on the show. And uh, with that, yeah. um, thank you, Sarah. It's been a great chat tonight. And Absolutely. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a nice night, folks. <laughs>